Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. And before we get into today's show, I wanted to take just a second to once again mention AIBS's Communications Training Bootcamp for Scientists, which is in December. The idea behind the program is it will help scientists translate their findings for a wide variety of audiences, policymakers, reporters, etc. You can learn more and reserve a space at io.aibs.org forward slash bootcamp. And for today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Rachel Gitman, who's a postdoctoral research associate at Northeastern University. She's here to talk to us about shoreline hardening, the installation of human-made structures to protect against floods, erosion, and other coastal threats. We had a lot to chat about, so let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Gitman, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay, and before we get into your analysis in particular, I was hoping you could give us just a general overview of shoreline hardening. Uh, What is it, and why do people harden shorelines? Okay, so shoreline hardening is a term that's used broadly to describe any time that we um, put an artificial structure or an engineered structure on the shore, so something that's man-made, with the intent to provide some kind of protection, whether it's uh, to reduce erosion um, from wave energy or even to potentially reduce flooding during a storm event when you're talking about some of the larger structures. And some examples of shoreline hardening would be um, concrete seawalls that you might see along an ocean coastline in the U.S. and elsewhere. Um, You can also um, see groins, uh, jetties, which are shore perpendicular, typically rock structures that are used to trap sand, usually on beaches. Um, And then you also can see um, hard structures like breakwaters, or sills that can be made of a variety of materials, um, but are often made of rock or concrete that are typically shore parallel, um, but offshore, and their intent is to break waves um, and dissipate that energy before it even hits the shore. Um, So all of those types of structures are considered some form of shoreline hardening. Um, And as I said before, it's it's really just to, to protect typically human um, infrastructure, so houses or, or private property or um, you know, utility lines, roads, um, from some kind of damage associated with uh, coastal storms or from just um, general erosive activities. Okay, and just as sort of a general matter, um, how often are shorelines hardened? Is this a very common practice? So it, it is relatively common. Um, it's something that happens over the you know, throughout the world. Um, so a lot of your major metropolitan areas are gonna have a significant amount of hardening. Um, so some of the work on shoreline hardening has come out of Australia, specifically out of Sydney. They have um, a lot of major seawalls. Uh, Japan has um, just miles and miles or kilometers if you think in those terms of shoreline that have large seawalls to protect from tsunamis and also from just storm events. Um, And then in the U.S., um, it's relatively common as well. Um, The estimate that I was able to to come up with um, in a recent analysis was 14% of the continental U.S.'s shoreline is hardened. And that is the equivalent of 22,000 kilometers of shoreline. Uh, So the 14% may not seem that common, but uh, 22,000 kilometers is a pretty significant 
number. And, and is this expected to increase? You know, I always wind up asking in, in every single one of these interviews at some point a uh, question about climate change and, and possibly rising sea levels. But are, are hardened shorelines something we should expect to see more of in the future? Well, I think it depends on how we choose to manage our shorelines in the future. If we go with the status quo and do things the way we are currently doing them, then I would say yes. Um, we would expect to see more hardening because people are not moving away from the coast in most places. They're moving towards the coast. Um, people want to live by the water um, for recreation and also just because there is typically a lot of um, industry um, going on along the coastlines. There's major ports, there's lots of tourism, and so there's job opportunities. Um, so we, we definitely expect more development associated with that increase in population. And with development comes the need to protect um, those structures from damage from storms or, or just other activities. Um, so if we allow that development and then we allow the subsequent hardening, then, then we would expect, um, in my opinion, for hardening to continue to increase. Okay. And so we've, we've talked about the upside of shoreline hardening, which is that you know it, it protects these human-built structures. Uh, but what kind of downsides are we looking at, just as sort of a general matter? So some of the downsides um, that have been observed, um, not just by my colleagues and I that have worked on this issue, but other people, um, including um, other disciplines like engineers, is that depending on how you design the structure, um, you can have um, loss of uh, shoreline um, adjacent to that structure um, or even in front of that structure. So if your goal is to, say, protect um, property landward of a, a seawall that you put in, a concrete seawall, and you've put it in and, and there's a, a lawn and someone's house behind it, that seawall might prevent erosion of that land. Um, but because of the shore dynamics, the wave energy, the geomorphology of the shoreline seaward of that structure, you may lose your intertidal uh, beach or your um, uh, shallow vegetated habitat if there's a marsh in front of that seawall or bulkhead. Um, so there's a trade-off with a lot of hardening techniques. Um, another example would be groins and jetties. or Again, these are structures that are shore perpendicular, and so they're trapping sand as um, the longshore currents move down the coast. And, and as those currents move down the coast, they bring sand and sediment with it. Um, and so if you're trapping sand and sediment on one side of a structure, you're obviously starving it on the other side of the structure. And so one person may accumulate shoreline while their neighbor might lose shoreline. Um, so that's one downside, just from a pure physical perspective. I actually had a question about this, about the jetty structure, because that's, that's something I'd not encountered before. Um, so it's, if you had, say, a current that was moving just on the east coast of the United States, um, northward, say, that current would be depositing sediment at some point. But if you had a jetty that jutted out into the water, it would stop the deposition north of the jetty? In theory, yeah. I mean, it depends on how long the jetty is. Um, so sometimes the, the current, if it's a short jetty, the current might be strong enough that it's not redirected so much that the, the current slows down enough for that sediment to um, drop out of the current. So these, these particles are being carried, you know, in the water column. And once they settle out, that's where they're being deposited. So if you, if you have a strong enough current and a short enough jetty, you may not lose all of the sand as it's rerouted around that jetty. Um, it really just depends on the specific site conditions. But a lot of places, I mean, you, you can look at this on Google Earth. Um, 
you can look along the coast and you can see these shore perpendicular structures and you see these, um, you know, lopsided shorelines where all of the sand is piled up on one side of a structure and then it's scoured out on the other side. And if you have a series of these structures along the shore, it'll just, it'll be a patchwork, um, you know, of, of um, shorelines that are robust and then scoured out. Um, and, and that's kind of a domino effect. You know, your neighbor puts in a jetty, you may put one in because you want to trap sand um, to try to restore your shoreline and, and so on. So you wind up with a little bit of a tragedy of the commons type of situation where your your neighbor's um, hardening a shoreline area causes you to want to do the same to protect against it. Yeah, exactly. I have a colleague um, at Northeastern who's actually published on that topic in Alabama, not with groins and jetties, but on, on bulkheads. Um, they did a series of, of surveys of homeowners and essentially found that that what their neighbor did um, influenced what they did in terms of their shore protection. If their neighbor had a bulkhead, they were much more likely to have a bulkhead. Um, so there is this tragedy of the commons, I think, occurring in a lot of a lot of coastlines. That's very interesting. Um, and now I was hoping we could move on to uh, your meta-analysis. So you were looking at some work that's previously been done on hardened shorelines and their effects. Could you tell us a little bit about the studies that you included? Yeah, so I was really focused um, on trying to understand the ecological effects. So we've talked a little bit about just the pure physical effects that you may be um, losing sediment. Well, associated with a loss of that sediment or a loss of a, a shallow um, beach or an intertidal beach is also potentially the loss of the organisms that are depending on that sediment or on that that larger beach area um, for you know, forage or refuge, some kind of habitat. Um, and so I am more of an ecologist than I am an engineer or a geologist. And so I really wanted to, to look at studies that evaluated uh, the biodiversity. So some kind of index of the number of species, um, so species richness or um, the number and abundance of individuals within a species like Shannon diversity indices. Um, for shorelines that had been hardened versus shorelines that were in their natural state. And the hardened shorelines I grouped into three categories, which we've talked about a little bit. So the bulkheads and seawalls being one category, uh, riprap revetments, which are these rocky structures that are placed in the same place that a bulkhead or seawall would. It's just that it's a combination, it's a big pile of rocks or concrete, not just a vertical wall. And then the other category would be breakwaters and sills, which are these shore parallel structures that are offshore um, and they're breaking the waves. But again, they're made of these rock piles essentially or, or some other material piled up. Um, and then these were each compared to whatever natural shoreline was in that the area where the study was done. So it could have been a rocky shore, it could have been a marsh, it could have been sand uh, beach or mud flat, um, but all of those were included. And so essentially any study done um, that was peer reviewed and published um, globally was included in the analysis. Um, if it made that comparison for either biodiversity or just had some measure of an abundance of marine organisms in the study. And then if those data were actually um, available within the publication, like they actually reported the numbers in a way that I could I could pull them out of the paper and include them in a quantitative analysis. Okay, and what did you find from those studies? Um, you know, were, were some forms of shore hardening better than others, and how did they compare with natural shorelines? So for the analysis, I, I tried to focus on just comparing uh, the hardened shoreline to the natural shoreline as opposed to comparing across uh, 
um, shoreline types, you know, comparing bulkheads to, to breakwaters just because um, they're not in the, they often aren't in the same location. But you can draw some conclusions based on um, their um, performance relative to their natural counterpart um, in terms of ranking those structures. And, and what I found is that seawalls and bulkheads, so these vertical walls, um, when compared to natural shorelines, um, they had lower uh, biodiversity of, of marine organisms associated with them, and they also had a lower abundance of marine organisms. Um, and this is across uh, different groups of organisms from um, you know, shorebirds to fish and crustaceans all the way down to the um, you know, small crustaceans and bivalves that are occupying the sediments or are um, encrusting on um, a rocky shoreline. And just out of curiosity, you know, um, what's what's the downside of having those lower biodiversity numbers? You know, um, is this going to affect things like local fisheries or other ecosystem services, anything along those lines? Well, yeah, it can. It can have an effect. Um, so when you have a lower biodiversity, you, you have, num- you know, fewer species or and you also may have fewer numbers of individual species. And, and each of those species may may be serving a unique function in that ecosystem, um, or it may be redundant. Um, but if you have any other stressors that come in and say uh, are affecting other species, um, there's no um, no overall buffer for maintaining that ecosystem function. So if you have two bivalve species um, naturally occurring in your community and shoreline hardening knocks one of them out, um, and then maybe poor water quality knocks the other one out, then you have no bivalves in your community. And those bivalves will provide a lot of services. So they may be food for um, fish or crustaceans. um, And those fish and crustaceans may be commercially or recreationally valuable. Um, They are also likely filtering out pollutants and toxins um, from terrestrial runoff. So your water quality might further degrade. Um, And um, they are just overall providing um, some structural heterogeneity for the ecosystem. So those bivalves are often reforming or they, or they maybe just have um, some kind of complex habitat structure associated with them. And that's habitat for other organisms. Um, so, so species are dependent on one another. And so if you have more biodiversity, you typically have a more robust, um, well-functioning system than if you have um, a lower biodiversity. And were there differences between the, you know, the different types of hardened shoreline um, and the effects that they showed? Yeah, so um, I, had, I spoke about the seawalls already. So seawalls and bulkheads were the only type of structure that showed a difference. So they were, you know, had lower biodiversity and abundance than the other structure types. Um, but the riprap revetments and then the breakwaters and sills, um, we didn't see a difference between those structures and natural shorelines. And there's a couple different reasons that we could see this. So one just could be simply that um, we had fewer studies um, on these types of structures. So our power to detect differences um, wasn't as high as it was for seawalls and bulkheads. Um, so that, that's one potential explanation is that we just didn't simply have enough studies to, to determine if there was truly a difference. Um, the, another explanation could be that there truly is no difference between these structures in terms of their habitat provision. Um, so they're, they're providing the same refuge as um, a natural shoreline. Um, and then the other explanation could simply be that for each organism group um, affected, 
these structures have varying responses. So unlike seawalls and bulkheads, where it seems to be a net negative for all organism groups, um, for breakwaters and sills and for riprap, it may be that only, um, only fish and crustaceans are affected positively while um, vegetative um, shorelines, so the plants that are occupying the shorelines like marsh or mangrove species are negatively affected. Um, and so we saw hints of that in our analysis, but we weren't able to conclusively say um, which one of those explanations um, was the most likely. So on that latter point, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this from, you know, my own local shoreline. Um, and we have some stone breakwaters that are out in the water and they are covered with oysters. Um, mm-hmm. So it could be a case where, uh, you know, the oysters are, are doing relatively well in that area and perhaps are aided by the uh, presence of the breakwaters. But the grass species that seem to inhabit a lot of the other parts of the shoreline that don't have those breakwaters are being killed off. Exactly. So that's, that's one thing that we, and we have seen this in um, some studies that um, have come out recently, even since I, I finished this analysis, I had a colleague send me a paper showing some negative effects of riprap on seagrass. And it's because of this um, wave reflection. Um, so this riprap is typically put landward of seagrass. Um, and if the seagrass is shallow enough and close enough to that riprap, it's possible that it, when the waves come in, they're reflecting off of the riprap and scouring out the seagrass. Um, so there's definitely um, evidence out there that these structures are going to affect um, some groups of organisms very differently than others. Fish, on the other hand, tend, and, and oysters, uh, encrusting organisms, um, all seem to, to like these rocky uh, structures because there's lots of um, crevices and cracks for them to hide in. Um, the oysters are able to attach not just along a vertical wall where they might get exposed directly to all of the wave energy and all the predation, but they could actually encrust, you know, on the lower side of a rock and get some protection. Um, so the benefits um, for, you know, some fauna are going to be, you know, very different than, say, the consequences for other uh, organisms. Okay, so we've talked about one of the potential effects um, or one of the ways in which um, the hardened shoreline could, you know, negatively affect biodiversity in the revetments. But how how does that work with, for instance, um, seawalls? You know what what's the what's the mechanism that could be causing the lower species diversity there? So I think I don't think there's any one mechanism. I think there's multiple, um, and I am drawing mainly from um, some of my own work, but also the the conclusions of the authors um, whose studies I included. And a lot of this is speculation because until you actually go out and experimentally you know test these mechanisms, you can't. You can't be certain that these are the causes, but the general list that we've kind of come up with is, one, you have this issue of wave energy reflection. So a vertical wall um, is not absorbing any of the wave energy when a, when a wave comes to shore. It's reflecting it right back out. Um, and that energy um, is going to have, you know, or may have an effect on anything that's seaward of that seawall. And so if it's just soft sediments um, with organisms living in those sediments, it might just increase the overall disturbance of that sediment that might interfere with um, benthic and fauna uh, feeding in those sediments. Um, it may displace them. Um, it, it may actually, you know, there may be wave energy that's strong enough to even kill some of those organisms. Um, you have 
uh, encrusting organisms, as I was saying earlier, uh, like um, oysters or maybe um, different types of algae, uh, barnacles, um, they may foul a seawall um, and may be able to attach to it, but the environment may be more extreme, again, because that wave energy is coming directly um, into that seawall and being reflected. Um, and if there were more crevices or cracks, um, places that um, those organisms could avoid being in the direct um, line of that wave, um, they may have higher you know, survivorship or, or growth. Um, they won't spend as much time um, defending themselves <laughs> from that energy. Um, there's also this lack of refuge from predation on a vertical wall. There's no place to hide. And this applies to your encrusting organisms, but also um, your mobile grazers like snails that might be living on, um, on a shoreline. And also your smaller fish and crustaceans that would typically crawl into cracks and crevices. Um, so there's physical and biological mechanisms that could explain uh, lower biodiversity on, on vertical walls, like seawalls and bulkheads when compared to natural shorelines. But I think they all link back to this very different um, structure. So a, a vertical flat wall is not a typical characteristic of a natural shoreline, any kind of shoreline. Um, rocky shores tend to have a lot of heter heterogeneity. It has lots of crevices and cracks and, and boulders. Um, soft sediments are generally more gently sloping and organisms can hide in the sediment. Um, and then your vegetated shorelines, there's obviously a lot of places to hide and to um, get away from um, some of your larger um, environmental stressors like wave energy or uh, exposure to air, for instance. Okay, so we've talked about you know some of the problems and some of the potential mechanisms that might underlie um, lower biodiversity on hardened shorelines, and I think it raises the question then of uh, what do we do? We're probably not going to stop you know human beings from wanting to build very expensive structures right on the shore. Is there a way to protect those structures uh, that's less environmentally damaging? So, in my opinion, yes, there are other options, um, and there's a term that's used to kind of encompass a variety of op options and that's called a living shoreline. Um, this is a term that the federal agencies in the U S have largely adopted. Um, and it, it basically is a term that you could define as, as any kind of stabilization technique that incorporates some kind of natural component or feature into the technique. Um, so it could be that you just plant um, marsh vegetation to stabilize an eroding shoreline. Like that would be the most natural um, type of living shoreline that you have. Um, or you could restore um, an oyster reef by putting loose oyster shell down. And then maybe you, um, but maybe that's not enough. Maybe you're in a higher energy environment and so you need a little bit more protection. Well, then you would maybe include that marsh planting, maybe do some oyster restoration, but also put an offshore rock sill in place so that you have both a living and an engineered component um, in your design. And then you can go all the way to, you know, the most extreme, which would be, um, you know, really large, maybe rock breakwaters um, and then some planting in your highest energy environment. Um, some people even say, you know, well, if you had to put in some seawalls, but you also put in uh, marsh vegetation, you know, in some ways that's kind of a living shoreline as well. Um, but, Typically, um, most people are going towards the breakwaters and the sills 
um, as the hard component they're incorporating in these living shoreline designs because they don't sever the connection between the upland and uh, the intertidal environment, which is what often causes the scouring of those uh, marine habitats and the loss of those marine habitats. That's something we worry about with, with climate change and sea level rise. Okay, and I'm I'm curious, what level are these decisions being made at? You know, are the, are these local city decisions? Or are they state decisions? Federal government decisions? Landowner decisions? I mean, I'm, I'm sure it gets pretty complicated in there. It's very complicated, um, and they're actually made at all levels. So, you know, first, an individual property owner has to decide that they want to do something about their shoreline. They want to change it. And if they decide they want to change it and they want to put in some kind of structure in most states, they have to have some kind of permit at the state level. And then there is a permitting process at the federal level. And then sometimes there's actually a permitting process at the local town or community level. Um, and this, as with, you know, so many of our laws in the U.S., this varies from state to state. Um, but the Army Corps of Engineers is the primary federal permitting authority for um, shoreline stabilization structures. So they, they also build a lot of the large structures we see um, on like public property and a lot of the big groins and jetties you might see. They also build the dikes and levees um, along the Mississippi, but they also permit them for private landowners. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated process and, and every state um, has their own way of handling the, the federal state joint um, review of these uh, permits. And so, you know, the objective, I guess, then would be to sort of tr try to nudge these various stakeholders in the direction of using more naturalistic structures, or at the very least, using fewer seawalls and bulkheads. Yeah. And so there have been many, many, many people um, moving in that direction um, from the federal agency perspective, also from nonprofit organizations, environmental groups, um, restoration groups, and then also, you know, individual academics have been trying to tackle this issue at, at each level. So there's been um, a lot of work to try to educate landowners, to educate marine contractors, your coastal engineering firms. Um, I've been part of some of these coastal training programs in North Carolina where we we invite marine contractors and coastal engineers and real estate developers to these trainings and we tell them about alternatives to bulkheads and seawalls. We present the data on on their performance and also on you know the ecological um, benefits of living shorelines relative to hardened shorelines. So that's kind of the grassroots movement. Um, there's then the state level where depending on what state you're in, there's been pressure to make it easier to get a living shoreline because the permitting process for these living shorelines is often complicated because it's relatively new. And so a lot of agencies, state agencies, are uncomfortable permitting them the same way they would a bulkhead. Um, a bulkhead is something they're familiar with, a living shoreline, they're not. And so they, they often want to take more time to review that living shoreline. And that can be a, a disincentive for a landowner. And then finally, at the federal level, the Army Corps of Engineers actually uh, has to renew their nationwide permits every five years. And they were up for renewal this year, and they introduced a new nationwide permit for living shorelines um, because they, prior, prior to this year, they did not have an appropriate um, nationwide permit to, um, 
to apply to living shorelines. Um, they didn't really fall cleanly within any of the existing permits. And so this meant a longer permitting process for those types of structures compared to a bulkhead or a seawall. And, and I can imagine, um, you know, local city officials, state officials, or landowners, um, you know, thinking about the next hurricane season and, you know, wanting to get something in place as soon as they possibly could. Exactly. And it costs money. Most permits have a fee associated with them. Um, so it's, it's not just a time, but also a cost issue. And then it, the other complexity is, is finding, you know, a contractor or engineer who is willing to do a living shoreline. Many homeowners will just look up a local contractor and they'll ask the contractor, what, do, what should I do? And if the contractor is used to doing bulkheads, they're going to say you should put in a bulkhead. Um, and so we've, we really are trying hard to get to the coastal engineers and to the marine contractors and say, look, this is something you can offer your homeowners and, and still make money. And, it, and it's not as complicated or, or as scary as it seems. Um, but it's a, it's a slow process. People, people take time to accept change. <laughs> Of course. And what sort of organizations are, do the outreach to those contractors? You mentioned that you were a part of one. Yeah. So in North Carolina, um, the um, North Carolina Division of Coastal Management um, is actually, the state agency has actually put on um, a lot of these trainings um, in association with um, NOAA um, and also with the help of some local uh, NGOs. So the North Carolina Coastal Feder Federation is a restoration group and a, an advocate for living shorelines and they've been heavily involved in in the the slow march towards um, living shorelines and um, so all of those groups have been involved um, in these training sessions and we're hoping that we can continue them in the future um, they're often funded um, by small grants either through the state or the federal government and so um, to co continue the program year to year you have to kind of continue to reapply for funding for these kinds of programs. So it's, it sounds like on the wider level, it's you have a situation in which the technology is there to do this in a less ecologically impactful way. Um, there's motivation there, at least at some levels, and it's just a matter of getting everybody caught up um, and ready to do it. Yeah. And, and it's, it's an issue where living shorelines are not intended to replace other types of shore stabilization everywhere. There's still plenty of places where a bulkhead or a seawall are going to be appropriate. If you have a large port where you're going to have large ships coming in and they, they need to have a, you know, a smooth vertical wall um, to, to dock against, you're not going to put a living shoreline in there. Um, but it's really this idea that we need to move towards environmentally preferable solutions um, in places where they are um, where they make sense. Um, and so to do that, yeah, we need people to kind of move away from what is just easiest or what they've always done um, to maybe um, something that might be a little more um, uncertain in their eyes, but that, that really um, can provide a lot more um, ecological benefits in the long term. One question I, I often asked um, is what's next for your research? Uh, what are you looking at right now? And what should we expect to look for in the future? So um, I'm kind of moving in a lot of different directions. As a postdoc, I'm, um, I'm actually working on projects that are totally unrelated to uh, shoreline hardening. I, I'm working on some population modeling of Atlantic cod right now. 
Um, I'm also part of a working group that's looking at um, how we fund um, at the federal level coastal restoration in the United States. Um, that's the project I'm currently funded to do. Um, so somewhat related, but but not really living shoreline specific or hardening specific. Um, but I'm not able to completely escape the living shoreline, shoreline hardening world. I'm actually working with a graduate student um, now who's um, doing some follow-up work to some of the work that I did when I was a PhD student. Um, I had looked at performance of different structures um, during a major hurricane, and she's gone back and and revisited um, my sites during another hurricane and then over another um, period of time. And so I'm working with her to kind of build a larger data set on the performance of these structures. Um, so that's kind of ongoing. And then I'm also working with the colleague Stephen Cyphers, who's a new faculty at Northeastern, to get into more of the socioeconomic issues. Um, so we've been doing some surveys of private property owners um, to try to understand you know, what drives their decision-making process. Um, and he's been doing this in Alabama, Florida, the Northeast. I've largely focused in North Carolina. And so over the next couple of years, we hope to have a better understanding of, you know, the, the decision-making, the economics behind these, um, these choices so that we can know where best to, to focus in terms of changing um, what people choose to do. Oh, that's really interesting. Uh, well, I think that about wraps up my set of questions. Um, is there anything else that you'd th expected to talk about on the podcast that you haven't had a chance to get to that I've failed to ask you about? Um, no, I guess I'd, I just would want to say that um, this has definitely not been a, a sole effort. Um, I've had a lot of great um, colleagues working with me on this topic, um, and I've had a lot of support um, from all sectors from, you know, private waterfront homeowners who are just interested in doing something different all the way to the NGOs and to the government um, agencies and, and also academia. So um, I'm just really very um, excited to be part of something that seems to be, um, you know, going across disciplines um, and across um, groups of people and bringing everybody together to, to try to address a complex but you know, really important issue. And that seems like a great place to leave it. Dr. Gitman, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you and talk to you next time.